It is an interesting time to be a, a black founder, especially. And like you said, I think that's causing companies to, you know, look our way more, hopefully venture capital to look our way more uh, because we're very capable. We have such amazing genius as, as people that still needs to be unlocked and, and advanced. And so I'm hoping to be sort of a pioneer uh, when it comes to black founders. That's the voice of Aaron P. Woods, devoted husband and father of four, a product manager at Google and CEO and founder of PodPal, currently the only Black-owned podcasting startup. As a former student athlete and 4.0 college graduate, Woods is no stranger to the fruit that ambition and hard work can produce. And with his startup company, PodPal, he aims to make podcasting more efficient, productive, and enjoyable for all creators. I'm Bryn Plummer, host of the podcast Twin Day, Rethinking Entrepreneurship. Twin Day is key Swahili for Let's Go, and it's our rally cry here at the EC. It represents the vibrant passion and strategy of Nashville's entrepreneurs who continuously strive to grow their businesses. It's also the name of the EC's program dedicated to leveling the playing field for entrepreneurs of color. This show is a production of the EC, and it's all about engaging in open and honest conversations with incredible Black and Latinx business experts, investors, and successful founders located throughout Tennessee and other parts of the United States. Behind every great entrepreneur is a compelling story, a passion to change the current narrative and turn roadblocks into opportunities. In today's episode, Woods joins me to share how a mission to provide for his family led him to develop a startup that seeks to remove the overwhelming steps that come from producing your own podcast. We will also discuss how he balances family life and his full-time job with building a startup and why he's passionate about pioneering a path for other founders of color. Before we dive into today's conversation, we would like to extend a special thank you to the generous support of the David and Rebecca Clements family for making this podcast, Twin Day Rethinking Entrepreneurship, possible. Beautiful. Well, Aaron, good morning. Good morning. Tell us about, you know, where you are, where are you recording from today? Tell us about what kind of a, a regular day is like for Aaron P. Woods. Sure. So I am in my uh, new office space in Atlanta, Georgia, which is uh, just a few minutes from my home. I finally got out of the home environment, which was a little bit crazy for me. I'm a, I'm a husband and father of four children. And so, you know, as soon as the kids are, you know, before and after school, it gets a little crazy around the house. So trying to work in that environment, of course, has been very challenging. And we've all had to endure different challenges with the pandemic and, you know, work coming home, school coming home, all of that. So I'm happy to finally have gotten into a little bit more of a, a groove and a routine working outside of, of the home again. So uh, I think your question was typical day. Yeah. For me. Basically, wake up in the morning and spend some time with the, with my, my wife and kids, getting the kids off to school, making sure everybody is set up to have a wonderful day. My son is on the autism spectrum and he attends a special school. So his 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 routine is a little bit different and uh, requires a little bit more effort sometimes. But uh, sure. we get we get through that part of our day, get the kids off and then it's to work at my full time job, actually, which is mm -hmm. with Microsoft. I work for Microsoft full time. But I am building my startup on the side on nights and weekends and every now and then doing a lunch period or a, a gap in a meeting like this. And so that's that's kind of my typical day. It's, there's a lot of maximizing my time. You know, I try not to 
to waste time. I know time is such a precious uh, commodity, especially being a husband and a father and, you know, obviously working two jobs. There's not a whole lot of time to waste. So I I'm a big proponent of, you know, sharpening the axe before cutting down the tree and saving yourself the trouble of being inefficient with your time. And that leads to a lot of what I why I started PodPal and mm. to help others uh, to maximize their time and get more done as well. Yeah, that, that actually segues perfectly into that question. So I know a bit about the story behind PodPal mostly started because of the problems that you saw your wife having as she was creating her own podcast. So tell me about that. Like, right. what was the impetus to create PodPal and what keeps it going today? What kind of gives you fuel to go on now? Yeah, the foundation was really empathy for Tanya and seeing her have this amazing idea and vision to help other women of color and mothers like herself to share their stories of vulnerability as well as their struggles of marriage and motherhood. And she has such an amazing mission and she was able to land, you know, several guests and get get things going. But she she really struggled with the administrative side of podcasting because as you know, you know, podcasting is an entire, there's an entire process it's you know, so behind much. all this. Is, it's so much. <laughs> especially when you want it to sound good and, you know, you want to have a exciting content plan. And then there's the marketing side and the promotional side of it. And ultimately the advertising side, if you get to that point. But like Tanya, many podcasters really aren't able to get to the point where their show is, you know, able to be monetized. And I wanted to be able to help her and others like her accomplish those that the dream that they really had in their heart when they started podcasting and and not become an administrator of their show and just a project manager which happens mm. very quickly for a lot of DIYers. So PodPal was created in the spirit of helping podcasters become more efficient and more productive so that way they can enjoy the the elements of podcasting that they got into it for which was storytelling, you know, interviewing amazing people, building a brand, you know, that's what got podcasters into the field. And so our software is helping them to do more of that and, and reduce the stress and the burden of podcast management. Yes, 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 yes. I think a lot of people underestimate how much ear share goes to podcasting, especially for women, for people of color, women of I mean, I feel like most women of color that I know, black women in particular, are listening to four to five podcasts a week, you know, if not more. I listen to probably two or three episodes a day. And so how do, like, what is the path to monetizing that? You know, obviously we're listening to that. How much traction does a podcast have to have before people start to see money or returns from it? If you can, you know, kind of guess. Yeah. Well, you know, I've talked to, uh, we have other partners who help us on the, uh, on the advertising side. And I can tell you that, you know, most advertisers are looking for in the range of five to 10,000 downloads per episode. Mm. That's what's attractive to them when it comes to, hey, this is a, this is a show that we want to put our dollars and our brand behind and sponsor. And so to get to that point, you really need to have consistent content and to build that type of audience, right? And that's not going to be built by dropping one episode every few months, right? <laughs> you need to be dropping, you know, new content regularly and keeping your your audience engaged. So then of course, planning then comes into that and forecasting and, mm. and sort of thinking about what does your season look like? What is your what does your guest lineup look like? And so Pop House helping people to see the bigger picture and really kind of 
get into this content planning, like I said, that sharpening of the axe before they cut down the tree. Mm. So that way they don't burn out from all the work involved. And they also don't run out of ideas and that their process doesn't start to overtake them to where they just can't sustain it any longer, which is what you you see a lot. It just feels like a slog sometimes. I know so many people who want to start them and they're like, oh my God, it's so much more work than I thought. Right. And not everyone has the funds to hire an agency, um, you know, which can be upwards of $1,500 per month, you know, to, to take care of some of these headaches. So we wanted to find a middle ground solution, build something that allows someone who wants to do it themselves, but they just, they don't want all the stress of doing it themselves. So our goal is to ease that administrative burden for folks. And like you said, podcasting is such a diverse field, right? It, not in, only on the not only on the creation side, but on the listener base. Mm-hmm. It is the most diverse like uh, content form right now. Wow. And the numbers, research numbers show that. So, you know, you have all of these amazing creators creating these niches and pockets of content. And it's really important that these creators are able to tell their stories and, and get their message out there. That is that is really what it comes down to for me and why I am so much more interested in podcast as a medium or even a platform like Instagram as a visual medium because it it has this democratized quality. Like there is no gatekeeper who's having to green light something or right. producers or, you know, a panel behind it that are deciding what is most marketable or what's what have you for the most part. Right. I think there is right. there is something about the intimacy you have to the creators. And also it just allows so many more people to get out there. Are there any what podcasts do you listen to? Do you have any kind of favorites? Yeah. Yeah. My favorite one of my favorite that got me into sort of the idea around podcasting was the how I built this podcast. Yeah. With Guy Raz. I love that obviously around startups, awesome innovators and dis- industry disruptors. I also like uh, listening to more storytelling type podcast that really dig into sort of, you know, these, these niche sort of communities. So one is soul talk that a friend of mine runs as well as my wife's podcast, mm-hmm. the Inkfully podcast is also amazing. I've been on there with her as a content creator a few times too. I love that. I want to back up just a little bit. I'd love to know about kind of how you grew up. What was your, what was your household like? What kind of sounds did you hear growing up? And then ultimately what led you to your path at Microsoft and, you know, kind of backing up from where you started, childhood, college, and then ultimately to PodPal. Okay. Well, I'll try to cover uh, <laughs> cover that <laughs> as quickly as I can. Yeah, but, we can all truncate it if you want. So I was born in 1985. Uh, <laughs> I won't start. At, <laughs> I won't start at birth. So I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Mm. I'm one of seven children, actually. Whoa. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm the third oldest of seven. The first boy of seven. Mm. I have four sisters, two brothers. So grew up in a large family. Family is kind of really essential, not only in my immediate family, but even, you know, generations before us, family has been a a very, we're very tribal, the Woods family. Mm. And uh, yeah, grew up in Jacksonville. I was a student athlete in in high school and and also college in terms of like the sounds that I grew up to, I guess, you know, sounds of laughter, joy, birthday parties, you know, hanging out with the family at home. We're a big board game type of family. We just, we're pretty close knit. My faith is very important to me. I spent a lot of my time at church growing up. 
Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Oh my gosh! <laughs> or when, or it was when it was Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. Sorry, Wednesday, Friday, <laughs> Sunday. It seems like I was at church all the time. Uh, my dad was a uh, an elder in our church, so we spent a lot of time at church and played again, played sports and all those sorts of things. Very family oriented. You know, I think Jacksonville is a is a big city, but it's got a it's got small time small town sort of vibes. Yeah. And you meet a lot of people who are very quality people there. You know, they, I like uh, Jacksonville in that when someone says they're going to show up somewhere or they're going to come and come and check out your ball game or something, they, they're there. You know, mm. that's what I find a lot of loyalty that I was surrounded mm. with. So then going into college, I actually attended Jacksonville University, decided to stay a little closer to home. And I was a student athlete there, so I played college football for the JU Dolphins. I was a defensive starter and captain of the defense for three years, but I was also a dual degree. I was um, enrolled in a dual degree engineering and physics program. Well, so I've always been this very like left-right brain, like, you know, macho guy over here, <laughs> but I have four sisters, so they helped develop my soft side, you know. So I've always been just kind of weird well-rounded i guess kind of person are you a gemini um so was, what's your sign we have to no go. i'm a leo okay leo well okay that makes sense yeah the charisma <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> the, the, what's the word confidence to step out do your own thing okay yeah anyway. all of those things like at 12 years old i was doing something called olympia sales club where i got three dollars per item that i sold and <laughs> i had this little book that i would go around to all of my all, all of my neighbors and sell stuff. It's kind of like the little booklet that they usually give you at, in, in elementary school. You exactly can get what like you're popcorn describing. and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but except for you got paid for this one. So like I wasn't into like, you know, I don't want a new little truck. I want some cash. So like, <laughs> so I did this little sales club thing. And so I was like that kid who was just like always very independent, entrepreneurial mm -hmm. spirit sort of thing involved in several different things and that carried on into college where like i said i was playing football and studying engineering mm. uh, and physics at the time and i got to a point where i had to make a decision because it was a the program that i was in only allowed me to do the first three years at ju and i had to finish the engineering portion of the degree at a larger college mm. and so i was faced with a decision to either continue pursuing my my dreams of maybe playing in the NFL one day and continuing to play football and just changing my major to stay at JU or to move on to, you know, with my academic pursuits. And so, again, just my faith being a real core of who I am, you know, I really felt like God was leading me in the direction of, hey, football season is over for you. And now it's time to step into something new. And so I transferred to the University of Florida, uh, where I would eventually meet my wife. I finished my engineering degree there which was civil engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as a result of really just diving headfirst into academics, really for the first time in my life, I'd always been a student athlete. I did really well in school. I graduated with a 4.0 and my professors were like, hey, you really should be thinking about graduate school. You have a bright mind. Why don't you consider that? And so I did and ended up getting a full scholarship to the University of Texas at Austin to do my master's in structural engineering. So you know, I'm now finished my master's and then uh, job opportunities come up and I'm looking all over and I find a, an opportunity to work for one of the really elite structural engineering firms in the world in Seattle. The name of the company is MKA. And they were the original, they were the, the structural engineer who built the wor original World Trade Center mm. towers. 
So, you know, they've built skyscrapers all over the world. And it's kind of like my dream job coming out of this, these academic pursuits. Yeah. Yes. And so I went to go work for them. And the very first project I was assigned was Amazon's headquarters in Seattle. So oh, I my, got to work are you kidding? On, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I actually designed several elements of that, of the of a couple of the 54-story buildings. Mm. That they, they've developed three buildings there as part of their campus. And I got to work on two of those, design the entire below-grade parking deck that is below those buildings. So... I got to really exercise everything that I went to college for. But at that point, there was another transition that happened uh, that kind of leads to kind of why I'm an entrepreneur and a, a lot of a lot of shift in my thinking, uh, which was when our son Elijah, who was at that time three and a half years old, was diagnosed with autism. And so this dream job that I was working, you know, I was working on 32nd floor and Fifth and Union in Seattle, mm. in the middle of downtown, mm. you know, really cool job, all that stuff. But the job didn't really provide the best benefits and so uh, health benefits. Right. And so I was then looking for any place and any, anywhere and everywhere that I could just get the support that I needed for Elijah. And so at that time, funny enough, I was knocking on Microsoft's door, Facebook's door, mm. all the big tech companies that are out there in Seattle. Right. None of them wanted anything to do with me because they're like, what are we going to do with a guy who has a, you know, civil engineering, <laughs> civil engineering background? Degree, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've been working on buildings. I've come, you know, hard hat, steel toe boots going out to construction <laughs> sites and stuff. So it's like, what do you know about software? They didn't want to give me a shot. So what I did was go with uh, the company I thought would, which was Boeing, because mm. Boeing being an engineering company really values kind of engineers from like more of the hard science background. Right. And so I was able to get a job there. It wasn't the job I wanted. I actually took a factory like type of job that didn't even require an engineering degree, but I just wanted mm. to get in the company because they had excellent health benefits. Mm. And so that's what I did. We made, I made that move. I worked for Boeing for three and a half years, did finally get into an engineering position there, but I was not happy from a professional standpoint because I had just made a switch that was really completely about supporting my family. Sure. And it was great. You know, right. I was 10 minutes from my I worked 10 minutes from home, was able to get my son to all his therapies. Everything was covered. It was great. But you know, whenever I went to work every day, I was just thinking, is this what I'm, is this what I'm going to be doing now? Am I now an aerospace engineer? Mm. How did I land here? Mm. You know? And so that enabled me to start thinking more openly about what do I want to do with the rest of my life? What, what profession do I really want to pursue? And is a nine to five really ever going to be enough for me to take care of Elijah as he becomes not just three, four, five, ten 10 years old, but what about when he's 30 or 40? Mm -hmm. What is it? What's he going to need then? Right. And so my thinking completely shifted from working a nice job with great benefits and retiring one day to I really want to be able to retire two generations at a minimum because I don't really know what all he's mm. going to be able to do for himself when he becomes an adult one day. So that really led to me starting to, you know, scratch that itch that I used to have when I was 12 years old mm. that I just told you about, <laughs> you know of like selling and getting out there and, and getting door knocking, you know, that's always been inside of me. And I've, I started, I started several businesses once I started with, you know, getting this new mindset, I started reading more books as well and become a really voracious mm. reader, things like the millionaire mind and rich dad, poor dad, and 
the lean startup. I just, I was starting to read things and meet people out in Seattle that really changed my perspective. Right. And so that ultimately led to me at that time was when Tanya was starting her podcast and I had been starting a couple businesses and meeting more people and being open to the idea of, you know, tech startups and all this. And so that's when the idea for PodPal came to me. And I basically use all of my engineering background from solving very challenging technical problems my whole life and doing building design and all this. I said, well, software is not really that much different in my mind. Mm. And so I taught myself, you know, um, several things related to, you know, coding and building an app and was able to convince other people to come and build with me and uh, organize a team and all of that. And so we were able to build it you have any you just have one of those yeah like i heard this i can't remember what i was listening to but something i was listening to said you know creators the only thing that is true of all creators is not necessarily that they're born with this innate gift for drawing or singing or whatever Mm -hmm. many of them are but it's that creators find have this desire to create and then they find mediums that meet their need to create and i feel like that's sort of you and a lot of the entrepreneurs i know who have this Mm -hmm. I would call them in the same vein of creators as this desire to solve problems, to create innovations or efficiencies or what have you. And it doesn't really matter the medium and people just kind of master mediums as a means to get to the creation or the problem solving or whatever the, the thing is. Um, And you definitely seem to have that drive. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. I believe in a lot of, uh, in career transformation, I've done it myself. The very companies that were literally, I have emails and responses from recruiters. You, you know, you don't meet the minimum qualifications. You're mm. you are not from the background that we're looking for. And now that same company, I'm a senior leader at Microsoft, mm. having no background in computer science. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so and now I have over 20 developers working work underneath me at a at a company that didn't even want to talk to me before work so (laughs) yeah so you know it's you it doesn't really matter where you start i think the most important thing is finding where your core skill sets and your core abilities uh what they what those things are and i spend a lot of time determining what is that what do i offer what do i bring to the table and as an engineer and a problem solver and a formal researcher you know someone who worked in a laboratory and all that there's a lot that i could offer when it comes to building something that requires, you know, uh, iteration that requires Mm -hmm. research that requires talking to users and gathering feedback from people. You know, I I ask very good questions. I've always asked very good questions. And so someone who asks good questions is is perfect for building software because there's a lot that you don't know, you know? And so it's all about validating any type of assumptions that you you might have about your users or your product. And so I was able at that point uh, in my career to leave Boeing. And then I went to go work for the Home Depot and their technology department in Atlanta. That's what brought us to Atlanta, Mm -hmm. Georgia. And we wanted, again, that was a family move too. We really wanted to get back closer to our family in Florida, where both me and my wife are from. She's from South Florida. Mm -hmm. And so we came to Atlanta at really just the right time because that's when the black tech ecosystem here in Atlanta was really starting to just bubble up. I'm not sure if you've met or if you've interviewed uh, Joel Burks from Collab Capital. She's on our list for sure. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. She's a good friend. I can, I can put you in touch, but I met her early on before, while she was just kind of 
I think she had just sold her company to Amazon. Mm-hmm. And I met her and several other individuals here in Atlanta who were trying to build up the black tech ecosystem, which was at the same time that I was moving to Atlanta with a startup that I had just kind of got going. And so it was really good timing. I met some really great people. And then a couple of years after working for Home Depot, when Microsoft brought an office here to Atlanta, I said, you know, let me give it, let, let me give them a try now, now that I have a little bit of you know, tech experience under my belt and I've built this app on the side. And they thought it, they thought what I had done at that point was awesome. And mm. they offered me a, a job. And so, so yeah, it's, it's funny. It's re- a really full circle moment because, of course, Microsoft's headquarters is in Seattle. So it, I was right, right there. <laughs> right in their backyard. <laughs> you know, right in their backyard, knocking on their door. They didn't want to talk to me. And now, you know, some kind of way all the way in Atlanta <laughs> on the other coast, I'm now working for them. And you had to move 1,500 miles away for them to be like, oh, this Aaron P. Woods guy. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I feel like Atlanta at uh, the Southeast is just it's an interesting time, I think, to be a founder in the Southeast. And uh, I mean, I feel oh, yeah. like it's just everything is heating up down here and markets where we couldn't get any play or any interest. Mm-hmm. I think we came to the it's kind of this like mass migration back to the South to right. really take advantage of a lot of different opportunities. And I think it's allowed more people to to shine than we necessarily right. people have always been here. It's just allowed a lot more people to get more lift and maybe a little more coverage. Yeah, it's like you like we're saying, it's a very interesting time because the entire, you know, world is more woke right after mm-hmm. George Floyd and mm-hmm. all the stuff that was always there, people are now wanting to wake up and 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 people who aren't people of color are now saying, hey, maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to to what's happening. And so it is an interesting time to be a, a black founder, especially. And like you said, I think that's causing companies to, you know, look our way more, hopefully venture capital to look our way more uh, because we're very capable. We have such amazing genius as, as people that still needs to be unlocked and, and advanced. And so I'm hoping to be sort of a pioneer uh, when it comes to black founders and mm. even late stage founder. Like, I mean, you know, I'm, 36 years old, which isn't, you know, terribly old, but I'm not your average startup founder who's 20 something, still in college, (laughs) right? Doesn't have a family or any obligations. (laughs) Yeah. Like, and I think that's also just knowing your story too. I know so many black founders in particular and Latinx founders in particular who are holding down a nine to five, managing family commitments. Maybe they Mm -hmm. are, you know, in their mid to late thirties, early forties, uh, and continuing to build their startup. I think even 10 years ago in the startup world, it was seen as a risk to have a founder who was not going full-time in the business. But the reality right. is, one, that person is potentially much more frugal and thoughtful about their time, like you said, sharpening the ax. And we have, you know, most of us, because we're balancing generational care, we can't exactly. step away from healthcare. We can't step away from a, a W-2. We can't step away from those things right. and uh, and be really responsible to our community. You know, we have different right. obligations. Have you felt that, you know, do you feel like that's changing? Do you feel like investors and people around the world of entrepreneurship are recognizing, like, there are people, I think Jewel actually wrote, Jewel Burke-Solomon wrote a really good piece on this uh, for her blog mm. where she talked about why she kept a full-time job the whole time she was growing her business. Do you feel like that's changing? I hope it will change more. I've talked with uh, a few, you know, investors and VCs who have said, we really love what you're doing. We just want you to be full-time before we write a check, you know, and I'm, and my response is, well, you know, 
in order to go full time, I would need a check, you know. <laughs> uh, and I'm hoping people can understand that more. And and I, I do want to say loud and clear, you know, not every not every great idea is going to come from a young person, right? I mean, yes. just look at how many amazing inventions. And when I say I am young, right? But I mean, when I say young, I mean someone who just has maybe no obligations outside of providing for themselves. Sure. So I'm hoping that you know people with capital can be wise enough and realistic enough to say someone can have a multi-million or billion dollar idea, which I believe we have, who has other obligations. So how can we support that person? Maybe it's yes. taking a little bit more bet on that type of founder, but also someone like myself has been through a lot more than that yeah. 20-something-year-old out of college, right? Heck like yeah. a more stable character-wise. I've been more tested and, and tried. And so I think that has a lot to do with how successful a venture can be as well. So that's that's part of the benefit of investing in someone who maybe didn't have that silver spoon in their mouth or, you know, has other obligations because like you said, you have to you have to think more about your decisions when it's not just you. So yeah, I, I don't know that it's changing a whole lot right now. Mm-hmm. I still get that response a lot or that expectation. But that's part of why, you know, we have bootstrapped up to this point and you know, we have working software, over 500 users, you know, a, a strong brand and all of that without having raised any capital. And sometimes you just have to mm-hmm. do a little bit more before, you know, you can earn sometimes the same respect. Sure. You know, that's unfortunately how it goes sometimes, <laughs> but no different than the Microsoft situation. I, f- I feel like, you know, you check back in a, in a few months and we'll be having the same sort of testimony with respect to venture uh, capital and things like that, that we I completely you know, agree. Yeah, we did it the hard way, but we still did it. I can, I, I can't agree more. I mean, that person has so much more riding on the success mm-hmm. of the company. This isn't just, you know, right. uh, we're going to fail fast and, uh, you know, fail fast, of course, break things internally. But, sure. you know, we need that company to succeed. We need those companies to, we have more on the line, I think. And yeah. that isn't a detriment. That is actually something that could be a really big boon yeah. to us and a reason to take a bet on us. Yeah, I think it's a huge strength. It really anchors those founders into what they're doing. And if you might even say we're that much more 100%, 100% bought in to what we're doing. Yeah. And so that actually segues nicely into, I was going to ask about your experience. You all were selected uh, in 2021 to be recipients of Google's Black Founders Fund. Mm-hmm. I was curious what that process was like for you. How much was the investment for? What what are the terms? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say to other people who are curious about the investment? Yeah. Uh, we are part, I will say also we're partners of Google for Startups. Mm-hmm. I'll just put that on the table, just like NPR style, that <laughs> they, are, they, are, they back us and support us. But okay. yeah, what was that process like for you? Yeah, well, I was part of the Atlanta Founders Academy, which was uh, kind of like a mini accelerator. It didn't that did not come with any funding. It was just education uh, and support. And so in order to apply for one of the Black Founder uh, Fund grants, or they call it funding, not, not a grant, actually, I shouldn't say grant because they consider it an investment into the company and not a grant. But uh, you have to have gone through some sort of Google for Startups accelerator or program first. Right. So, right. so that was a, that's what allowed me to qualify to even apply. And then the application process was fairly simple. It's just a you know simple application, and they look at your company and your business and do an interview. Uh, we were selected to receive one of the uh, 
50 startups. Yeah, one of 50 mm -hmm. startups to receive a mm -hmm. $100,000 non-dilutive capital. So there's no terms other than receive the money and make sure you handle handle things with the with the IRS, you know, in terms of <laughs> in terms of uh what we owe back to them. You know, they did not take any portion of our company. They've only continued to support us and give us additional exposure. Um, I've already received a couple of calls from investors who said, hey, I saw you on the Google Black Founders Fund list. We we'd like mm. to talk with you as well. Mm. So it's it's turned into, uh, you know, obviously it has transformed uh, at this stage with having up to that point, zero dollars into the business. Right. They give me a little bit of funding to to do some marketing and continue to pour into our product. And so we are very grateful for Google, for startups, and for all of those connected uh, to the Black Founders Fund. Yeah, that's how we found you. We found you. We were looking through the page of Black Founder Fund recipients, and that's how we learned about PodPal. And we're big podcast fans, and mm -hmm. so that's how we... Uh, that's also what piqued our interest, too, sure. because as I understand it, you guys are the only Black-owned podcasting management, podcast management platform. And I don't know if that's still the case. Yes. Uh, as far as we know, yes. And and also host and also hosting. I mean, you know, we, we, nice. we don't necessarily categorize ourselves as a traditional podcast host, but we do offer the, you know, traditional podcast hosting services uh, paired with you know, the advanced project management type of features you would expect from SaaS applications like Trello, Asana, Notion, mm -hmm. you know, all of these mm -hmm. kind of like future of work type of applications. So I always say that PodPal is like the future of work meets the future of podcasting. How can we mm. enable people to get, spend more time doing what they love and less time, you know, with all the administrative or repetitive tasks. So we're bridging, we're bringing those two elements together in a single platform. I love that. And it is one of those things, you know, that I think people underestimate because it's such an easy to engage with medium. Mm -hmm. I think people do really underestimate how much work it is to get off the ground. Oh, yes. It's it's so difficult. Right. <laughs> I do one tenth of the work that is needed to make this podcast happen. Right. And I'm still often overwhelmed. <laughs> right. What do you guys want to see? You know, what do you want to be the impact on the podcast community? Uh, you know, what what's going to be true in five years? Because of PodPal. I love that question. What will be true is that it won't be so difficult. You know, people can go to one place to podcast and, you know, to plan, publish, and promote their show in one place, having all the tools literally mm -hmm. at their disposal. I look at companies like Canva or, you know, Slack yeah. or you think about uh, Squarespace, you know, how hard was it to build a, web a website at one time? Now anyone can do it, right? That's what mm -hmm. we want to be true of podcasting it is it's 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 the same it's the same um sort of premise as like a website or a blog everybody should be able to have a blog it's a it's a free enterprise why is it so hard to access for so many right. people right right so you look at the podcast industry today i think there's 2 million 2.2 million active podcasts how many million oh. haven't been started <laughs> that's oh that's the question I no have, telling you know no telling and we think of new ones once a week a minimum <laughs> right and it's a global phenomenon it's not just here it's globally you look at we're looking at I've, I've looked at the you know south africa australia european market mm. podcasting is bubbling up there as well so yes, yes. we're positioning ourselves for for what is clearly a trend and i believe that podcasting is going to replace blogs and I think mm. that they may even start to over, 
overtake audiobooks because it's really the same medium without all the 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 pub you know the publisher and all you know, there's a lot of right there's a lot of roadblocks that aren't there in podcasting to get if ultimately the same type of content out to the world right yes you know what what role are they going to even have on just the the book market one day because it's ultimately the same content and we're living in a time and a generation where every generation things get more and more touchless right so like mm. my son is he's very he's very into analog type stuff he has he's he's just a high touch low tech kind of guy even though he's 10 years old <laughs> he has a record player he's asked me for a vhs player he has a, oh my god he, i love him he, own, he owns a cd player you know is this elijah this is elijah yeah he yeah. owns a cd player he wants a film camera he likes everything that is like high touch but think about those inventions and think about the progression over time Let's just talk about music as as an example, right? You went from records, you got to lift the needle and put put you know put the record on, and it's very high touch. Then you went to cassettes, then you went to CD, then you went to MP3, now Bluetooth. Each time is getting there's you know now you just say, hey Siri, play whatever. You don't touch anything, mm. right? Same music, and so I'm looking at those type of trends, and I'm wondering how is education, comedy, you know entertainment all the different things that the categories of podcasting that's kind of in the same realm of you know i i, I look at so many i've seen so many podcasts that are true crime podcast or mm. you know uh mystery even book publishers are now partnering with podcasts to let to give them the the rights to read that content over the over a podcast so someone can yeah. listen to this yes. so we we still don't even know how big this audio podcast a hundred percent as you're saying that i'm just thinking about like the markets what what don't i know about the life of someone in australia you say australia right. or south africa what don't i know what are those stories and voices in the same way that i've learned so much about america right. you know as someone who's born here grew up here so much about america through podcasts and these right. undiscovered kind of like that word niche that you were using right. there's so much that we don't know right and that hasn't been told and shared. And, and it does feel like everything you're saying is getting me so excited yeah. for what we can learn through this medium over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's so vast, right? And even, even from, a, like I said, diversity-wise, I believe that in podcasting, the, the second language, the most podcasts produced outside of English is Spanish. And so mm. is it, we're even talking about other languages, right? That things are being produced in. Yes, and so many times yeah. we're looking through this through a single vein of U.S. podcasts, English podcasts. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't have that lens on right now as I'm building what I'm building. I'm thinking about just how far reaching this can be, the niche communities, you know, all the brands that would want to reach those communities. It's, it's a very powerful medium. Heck yeah. So much money to be made. So I think that's the other thing too, the link that I think, makes this connected to the overall well-being of underrepresented founders is just and underrepresented creators is just there's so much money on the table and people have taken our ideas and our culture and all these different things and made money from it for years right. and now there's a company like PodPal in the mix who's going to help people who have these stories that have this cultural cachet 
get the capital cachet that's connected to it. Absolutely. It just feels really endlessly, like there's endlessly promising opportunities. Yeah. It's put into power in the hands of the creator. And, you know, that's also, while I, I like to say it about Papa, while we're putting the productivity and the creator kind of tools and the organization at the forefront, we ultimately will bolt on, you know, the ability to monetize and advertise your podcast through PodPal. But so many of the competitors are leading with that. And that what they're telling people is, come on our platform, you know, host your podcast with us and, and monetize, your, monetize your show, earn money podcasting. Well, as we know, there's a path to doing that. <laughs> you, don't, you don't do that yeah. from day one yes. with your podcast unless you're LeBron James or right. someone who's already created <laughs> a, a major brand around themselves, right? right? Yeah, right. he can do that. Yes. He can start podcasting and he can get, you know, Nike to sponsor that immediately, right? Easily, right. Okay, but we're talking about the million, that's the top 1% of all creators. What about the 99%? They need to develop, you know, a content strategy. They need to be disciplined. They need to stay consistent. They need to be able to get get to their 100th episode produced mm. right so how do, how do we get them from from zero to 100 what tools do they need to get there that's what pod pal is focused on and that's why our mantra as a company is a podcaster's best friend that's what the word pod pal means a podcaster's best mm. friend so we're doing our best to be that person who can hold their hand through the process to allow them to take their dream to a reality uh you know through the tools that we provide to them and we're not just selling them, oh, you're going to make money if you come, you know, there's a path to earning an income with this. We're going to help you yes. along that journey. Yes, yes, yes. It, that's, that's it. Like, no promises, no blowing people up bigger than they are. Right. You know, but like, hey, this is the work that's going to get you to 100. I think that's really, um, people can see that with such clear eyes. And that's true friendship. That's true kindness. Because right. the others are, mi- are honestly misleading you. You know, the, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that is like big time. It becomes a marketing ploy, in my opinion, and and mm-hmm. I know that marketing is a part of every business, but I just think that when you talk about someone's passion, what they want to get out to the world, it's almost unethical to just play on. Oh, let's just let's hook them with the you know, let's hook Heck them yeah. with the oh, they're going to make money on this, right? Who who's the one really making money? Right. right, the hosts, right? right, the host, the platform, all those folks. Yes, yeah. the people getting users, a hundred percent. And it's a marketing ploy. That's it's a old playbook, I think, used almost exclusive, not exclusively, but used very often against the consumer groups that we are parts of. That's you right. know, black people, right. Latinx people, people who are like not as necessarily deep into that world to understand the mechanics of it, exactly. but definitely have something interesting to share. Right. And and so I do think there is a there's a lot of brand credibility in what you guys are doing yeah. and what you're doing that is revolutionary in right. and of itself. And social media doesn't help, let's be honest. I mean even even no, our peers no. are, are telling everyone is like, oh, you gotta make money doing something. Right. And to me it's yeah, like yeah. it'd be nice if you make money doing something, but do it because you love it, because it's helping people, because it's valuable. You know, because yes. you're you have some type of value exchange that you're offering and the money mm. will follow. It will always follow those sorts of mm. things. But no one's mm. no one's telling you that anymore. You know, everything has to be you have to be, you know, an influencer and you have to make money. Yeah, and, big time. You know, everyone's a millionaire these days and it's always like become a millionaire. <laughs> it's like, why is it always just a million dollars anyway? That's the question I have too. Oh my um, yes. Know? Hello. 
Um, a million dollars, like you said, you're trying to retire two generations. Right. A million dollars won't do that. And also, it is a farce right. <laughs> to say that everyone's going to make a million dollars. Right. No one out here stunting on Instagram is a millionaire. I would say less than, <laughs> and would you say 1%? I'd say we're in the 1% range of stunting right. to reality ratio. <laughs> and then I guess, you know, I would love to just, as we get to the end, I... And so everything that I've read and watched and seen and listened to from PodPal, I'm super inspired by and intrigued by. But I wanted to just give you an opportunity, Aaron, to share how can people keep track of PodPal? Yeah. Like, what do you guys need right now? Mm-hmm. And then how can people keep track of you all, stay in touch with you all, all that kind of stuff? Awesome. Yeah. Well, we can be found on Instagram, PodPal is our handle, uh, PodPal.com. So, you know, Twitter, Facebook, all those things. But the most help would be just getting on the platform, using it, experiencing it, giving us your feedback, leaving us a review on Google, engaging with what we've created and, you know, spreading the word that it exists. That would be the most helpful from the creators and the, consum- the consumer side of, of things. In terms of, you know, capital, we are looking to raise a, a seed round in May of June of this year. So, you know, investors who you know have heard this podcast and listen to this story. If you're interested, please reach out. You can mm-hmm. reach out through our website um, and uh, let us know that you're interested. I don't want to drop my email on the podcast, but... No, don't do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you'll get a lot of emails. <laughs> yeah. But um, but LinkedIn is honestly the best for that. So, you know, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, so please uh, reach out and connect to me there, connect with me there. And then we also want to connect with anybody who's interested in possibly being a brand influencer or a brand ambassador mm-hmm. uh, along with us to help us continue to spread that message of what we're doing. Uh, so I think those are mostly the ways to just stay in, those stay are in great. touch and stay engaged. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that path to first thousand customers is is hard. Um, yeah. But you're more than halfway there. So, yes, folks, podpal, P-O-D-P-A-L dot com if you want to check them out. Can't recommend them enough. And then Aaron P. Woods. And you guys, please check out also Aaron was on the show Bet on Black, which uh, is on Revolt TV. And PodPal was on there and top 12 uh, black companies pitching to the panel. And um, it was a really great showing for you also. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that's on YouTube as well. If you want to just go to YouTube and check it out, I think there's like over two million views of it on YouTube. So, I mean, it was really exciting TV. I learned a lot of. I learned about a lot of new companies, a lot of companies across the southeast too. Which always, you know, I'm born, and raised in North Carolina, okay. been in Tennessee for ten years. So, I like to see the South uh, be put on. So, yeah, we were just in Tennessee too, by the way. Oh yeah, you you guys at, were pod, uh, podcasters movement last year, right? Yes, and we uh, we hosted an event called Podcasters of Color that. We hosted out of our own pocket, um, sponsored the event, brought our team there and equipment there and partnered with Hennessy, actually, uh, for that event nice. and hosted over 200 black and brown podcasters at that one event. So that that's also on YouTube oh, if people wow. want to check that out and just kind of see what we've been doing in the community and how we're giving back to the very community that we come from. So um, there's a lot of good in, in what we're doing. That's beautiful. I love that. And hopefully we can see you in Tennessee again soon. I mean, it's like a three-hour drive from here to Atlanta, three and a half or so. So next time we're in Atlanta, we'll say hey. Next time you're in Nashville, please say hey. And um, we really look forward to seeing the growth of PodPal and all the stories that are going to come out of it. So, Aaron, we thank you so, so much. And we look forward to being able to share the episode with you when it's ready. Thank you. Thank you for having me and allowing me to share my story uh, with your audience. Thank you for listening to Twin Day Rethinking Entrepreneurship. 
a podcast that features conversations with incredible Black and Latinx business experts, investors, and other successful founders located throughout Tennessee and other parts of the United States. We want this show to support you and reflect the realities that entrepreneurs face every day. So your feedback is much appreciated. For a recap and transcript of this episode, and to learn more about the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, including the Twin Day program, go to twindaytn.co slash podcast. That's T-W-E-N-D-E-T-N dot C-O slash podcast. If you learned something from today's episode, please follow, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you again to the David and Rebecca Clements family for the generous support that makes this podcast possible. Until next time. Can you imagine starting a company in a closet and later selling it for over $20 million? If you're on the entrepreneurial journey or have an interest in learning more about Nashville's business pioneers, Nashville Entrepreneur Center has a show for you. Circle Back captures Nashville's most innovative entrepreneurs to share their stories and give back to the next generation. You'll hear equal parts inspiration and practical insight from some of the city's most exceptional entrepreneurs as they recount the defining moments of their journeys. Listen to new and past episodes on demand at ec.co slash podcast or search for Circle Back wherever you listen to podcasts. You don't have to start and grow your business alone. Come down to the EC and work with fellow entrepreneurs. For more information, visit ec.co. That's ec.co.